Shamai, I've got a discount code for you. Aardvark Group have got a discount code that's running for the month of December. Uh, December only. The discount code is TAG30, T-A-G-3-0. If you go to aardvark.group and go into their merchandise store um, there and enter that code at checkout, you will get a whopping 30%, 30% off when you purchase some Aardvark merchandise. Got some cool stuff on their t-shirts, mugs and other paraphernalia. I, uh, I strongly encourage you to check it out. The Aardvark Group were founded in 1982. They got a strong military roots, and they got a lot of uh, ex-military working for them on their team. And the Aardvark Group exists to uh, initially they were brought about and came into existence to uh, develop a mechanical landmine clearing system, um, basically for the clearance of all known anti-tank and anti-personnel mines in the world using mechanical manual means, and also the location identification and disposal of all other munitions and unexploded ordnance. It's a massive undertaking. What they what they're doing, uh, the task to clear the world of landmines is enormous, as you probably well know. And uh, the estimate of how many mines there are in the world varies, but the Red Cross estimate that uh, it's around 110 million landmines worldwide. That's crazy. When you think about a small country like Croatia, which has been really well mapped when it comes to landmines, they've got an area of four billion square meters covered in landmines from legacy conflicts that need to be cleared and aardvark is a company that go about that business of identifying the munitions mapping them so people know to stay away uh, and then obviously clearing those munitions landmines anti-personnel mines anti-tank mines like i said they've been doing it since since 1982 so for more than five decades uh, over more than five decades the aardvark group has developed technical innovations which support operators fighting at the front line of conservation and for the protection of natural resources using their principles of detect protect and defeat you can find out more about the aardvark group at their website which is aardvark.group and you can also find them on social media they're on twitter as art uh, at aardvark underscore cm that's m for mike and they're on instagram uh, as at the underscore aardvark underscore group just look for the aardvark group on twitter facebook instagram and linkedin and give them a follow thank you to those guys sponsoring the podcast and for doing everything you do to support the village community very much appreciate it also sponsoring the podcast today are unmanned air veterans unmanned air veterans are veteran owned and operated they were founded by a guy called Stuart logan Stuart logan used to work in three two used to work in he Stu logan was part of an integral part of three two regiment royal artillery and they're a unit which support reactive force elements of hm forces with unmanned aerial vehicles uavs Stu served for 17 years uh, his first deployment with the uav system was actually to kosovo back way back in 1999 and during his career he deployed multiple times to other places including iraq and afghanistan with uavs during the tail end of his career he considered applying his knowledge and experience that he'd learned in, with UAVs in the military world into the civilian world. So to provide commercial UAV services, which is what unmanned air veterans does. However, he had the grand plan, but um, when he was made redundant, unfortunately, uh, depression and PTSD had a big impact on him and on his family and obviously on his aspirations to start the business. But he was, uh, he was accepted by Combat Stress to receive support and also was provided uh, support by the Poppy Factory, Health Heroes and the X-Forces Network. 
And Stu was actually able to attend a business coaching course at Tedworth House. After he finished that, he qualified to apply for a grant and a business loan. And now with ongoing support from his partner and his kids and his old colleague from 3-2 Regiment, a guy called Tom, who's now his business partner, Unmanned Air Veterans was born and is going from strength to strength. The primary focus is to support digital media, so promotional or facility and site safety work. Uh, they support TV and film, surveys and inspections of infrastructure and facilities. As mentioned, the guys behind this company have operated drones, UAVs, on operational tours all the way from Kosovo in 99 to modern-day Afghan and Iraq. They've worked with multiple systems, including Phoenix, Desert Hawk, Hermes, Buster, T-Hawk, and Watchkeeper. So if you need commercial UAV services, then get in touch with these guys. Search for Unmanned Air Veterans on LinkedIn. They're on Facebook and they're on Instagram. Support this veteran-owned business. Give them a follow. And definitely use them if you need UAV services, commercial UAV services. Perfecto. Thanks, guys. Also sponsoring the podcast today are Rugby for Heroes. Rugby for Heroes exist to fundraise for military charities, and they've been in existence since 2009. They were actually formed in the wake of the death of Private Joe Whitaker, who was killed on operations serving with the Parachute Regiment in Afghanistan in 2008. Since forming, Rugby for Heroes started up doing one event a year. They would run a the Rugby Heroes Rugby Festival at Old, Le- Old Lemontonians RFC in Warwickshire, where where the founders of Rugby Heroes are part of the keen rugby players, beer drinking people. I'm trying to think of a nice nice word to use there: rugby playing, beer drinking people, <laughs> good people, headed up by Mike Mike Valance. And um, yeah, they start off with one event a year immense event it, it is when it happens it's on it happens on the in may on a, on a holiday weekend in may a holiday weekend on a weekend in may and uh and even just with one event a year that they've been running since then they've still managed to raise in excess of one hundred and ten thousand pounds for military charities which is a, a, a huge amount you talk when I mean, we're talking what we're in, they're in their 11th year now so you're talking They've maybe because they they've increased the number of events they they now do, uh, so it includes supper clubs and beer and gin festivals now as well. Um, but so they've probably run what maybe thirteen or fourteen events, I reckon. And just over those events, they've still managed to raise over one hundred ten thousand pounds, a staggering amount of money, which is a testament to the amount of work that goes in behind behind the scenes to put those events together, and how highly valued those events are when people attend them to raise that amount of money. They're awesome events, really good fun. Since I found out about Rugby for Heroes a couple of years back, I've been to every event that they run. Really glad I've been able to do that, and I intend to do that going forward. Fingers crossed I'm able to, and hopefully you can get to one of their events too. Um, their schedule of events has gone peat song because of COVID, but they are raring to go and get up and running in 2021 when they're able to. So to keep an eye on when the next events are, you need to follow them on social media. So it's at rugby number four heroes, rugby for heroes on social media. They're on Instagram, they're on Twitter, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Yeah, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook they're on. So follow at Rugby Number 4 Heroes. And also, um, they've got a website, and it's rugbyforheroes.org, rugbyforheroes.org. Thank you to Mike and everybody behind Rugby for Heroes for supporting this podcast and for, obviously, supporting the military community for the last 11 years. Very, very much appreciated. On to the podcast. My guest today is... Billiana Hutchinson. 
Biliana Hutchinson has been on once before, actually. She was, I think it's episode 27. She's a good friend of mine, and um, we met in 2010. Uh, she was involved in, uh, she's an aid worker. She's Serbian, Serbian born. She now lives in the UK. And she was an aid worker working in Afghanistan at, uh, at, uh, at the time of a Taliban attack, terrorist attack on their compound, their building, their base in a, a province called Kunduz. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, several people were killed in that incident. A friend of mine was killed who was working as a, uh, who, was, uh, work, who was running the team that was protecting her and the other clients there. And uh, another friend of mine was shot protecting her. Biliana was also shot uh, among some other injuries. And um, the first time she came on, uh, I had intended to talk through this incident. That was the reason, but I think just due to my experience, I, I didn't want to ask her about it, even though that was the point of the podcast. So we never actually came onto it properly. We had a fascinating podcast, though, to, learned all about her her growing up in Serbia in the nineties, basically when it was getting smashed by you know um, by uh, the Western world with the conflict that was going on there, a huge bombing campaign, and she was in amongst it there. Uh, yeah, really interesting that all was. So if you, if you, I mean, doesn't, you don't have to watch them. Like, doesn't matter which one you listen to first or watch first. Uh, but if you want to go back and uh, find out more, it'd be listen to twenty seven. This episode we talk through that incident in Kunduz, which is uh, it was a crazy, crazy incident which lasted a long time, hours and hours and hours, and. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Uh, and a fascinating insight as well into the life of an aid worker working in uh, conflict zones and um, and then surviving what was a pretty a pretty nasty nasty incident. This is the H Hour podcast. My name is Hugh Kier, and my guest today is Billyanna Hutchinson. Enjoy. Congratulations on successfully getting you, in fact, unsuccessfully getting you with the Audi navigation system. Yes. <laughs> Google Maps, Google Maps yes. is the way forward. Right. Definitely. Second time <clears throat> on. Uh, I'm going to do what we what we were supposed to do the first time, but I've weird weird the first time. I think the first time you came on, we had intended to talk through the Kunduz incident. I think we had, if I remember going back. And then when you came on, I think it's because just my inexperience with it, I, I, I felt, I think we talked about this as well after, I felt bad. I didn't want to ask you about it in case it sort of, in case it, in case it was just like, too emotional, even mm -hmm. though we'd already said, yeah, let's come on and talk about that. And so we didn't talk about <laughs> it. However, the conversation was super interesting. You know, you growing up in Serbia, that whole experience, especially through the 90s as well, mm. and then going out and uh, going into, you know, aid work and, um, in conflict zones, right? And especially on the, especially when you were talking about your earliest memories of combat as a kid, essentially as a teenager, and then your first experiences of trauma. You know, so for, for anyone uh, listening or watching this, Biliana came on early last year, B? I think so. Last, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. It's about it two early, years now. Yeah. It was early last year. Um, so going, 
definitely go and go and listen to the first one. I'll have a look after this. What episode <coughs> it was? Uh, go listen to the first one and then come back to this one, or vice versa. E- either or, they don't have to be sequential. But so this time we're going to do it should the first time. And uh, in 2010, uh, you were involved in a, uh, a a very traumatic incident in Kunduz, Afghanistan. Um, I won't go into much detail. So you, we come to know each other because. People in that incident were friends of mine, um, are friends of mine, and um, and that incident led to us meeting, and now all the way down the line, ten years later, yeah. we're now sitting in the studio about to talk talk through it. So, can you to to build up to that incident? What were you doing in Afghanistan at the time? Mm-hmm. Why was Biliana Hutchinson, <laughs> the civvy, or Biliana, what was your what was your surname then? Todorovic. What was it? Yeah. <laughs> Say it again. <laughs> Todorovic. Oh, Todorovic. Yes. So Todorovic. Why mm-hmm. is Biliana Todorovic mm-hmm. hanging around Kunduz, Afghanistan, mm-hmm. doing whatever you're doing? Let's uh, let's take. If you want to take it from there, should we take it from there? Yeah, yeah, we can. Yeah. Go for it. Uh, well, I came to Afghanistan in 2009 after nine years of working in Kosovo. So basically, that was my career. My that was that was what I decided to do to be an international aid worker. So I spent nine years in Kosovo working for different organizations. I started with the United Nations, and uh, then nine years down the line, um, Kosovo got independence, and my contract with the organization that I worked with ended, and I didn't want to. The situation in 2008 in Kosovo was kind of getting very similar to the 99 uh, situation. And I, I did 99, so I wasn't interested in repeating that. Um, so I left. I decided to not extend my contract and leave. But I, at the si- same time, I decided to go to an international mission. I thought it was time for me to move on career-wise. So I applied for Afghanistan. Um, Iraq Human Rights Office in Iraq with the United Nations and I was looking into Liberia as well and Afghanistan worked at first um, I had contacts good contact in in Afghanistan and in Iraq and I really didn't have any preference I was really thinking like whatever works out first that's where I'll go and uh, it it happened that it was Afghanistan so <clears throat> I went there with a really small uh, US-based uh, company in Annapolis. It was only three of us expats in the office. And um, we had a team of about 80, uh, 80 nationals. And we were covering mostly Southeast, which is Ghazni province and Southeast of Afghanistan, um, a little bit of East. And we worked as a subcontractor to the largest USAID program, um, which was called Local Governance and uh, LGCD, Local Governance Community Development. And it was run by a company, Development Alternatives, who I ended up working with uh, later. DAI. DAI. DAI, that's right. And I was with the company. I really loved it. I, I went to Afghanistan for like, you know, thinking, okay, I'm going to go and try. Be there for three months, see if this is for me, because obviously I knew it's going to be very different from anything that I experienced before. And during the interview, the 
the country director of the, the company, he was really great explaining to me everyday life as well, not just the job, especially being a woman, you know, going to wear a headscarf and, you know, long sleeves and things like that. <clears throat> so, uh, so that was, uh, that was very, very much, um, really on a test and trial basis. So, okay, let's go there and, and see what happens. So I went, I really liked it. I enjoyed the job. Um, there were some challenges, of course, at the beginning, but, um, overcame that and, and about seven or eight months later, I was offered a job with the AI <clears throat> and I accepted it and started with them in October, 2009. And that was actually a big change for me because security wise, especially because working for a small <clears throat> company, the first one, we had a very keep the low profile policy. So we were blending in with the local population, right? So we didn't have any armed guards. We didn't have any security. We had local driver. We had small old Toyotas that we were driving around in. And we lived in Kabul and we worked in Kabul and the office was, it was really very much like local population. Right? We lived in a small house, no security, apart from a local Afghan guy who was at the door. And, um, and that was it. Right? That's so crazy. very, very low profile. Yeah, very low profile. <clears throat> because we didn't want to attract any attention. Right? So you don't make yourself a target. Um, and then when I started working with the AI, which is a giant American company and the, the biggest uh, USAID contractor in, in Afghanistan, obviously they had armed guards, you know, um, the, the convoys, the cars were all uh, armored cars. And, and I needed actually to learn now to work with that close protection uh, team. You know, I, I didn't have that awareness that wherever I want to go somewhere, I have to let the guys know, actually ask for permission, you know, because they have to go and see where I'm going. And if I'm going to somebody's house or somebody else's office, they need to go and check the office and actually tell me that, yes, I'm okay to go there or, or no. So it took some adjusting of security team to me and me to a security team as well. Um, but we got there in the end, and uh, I really like that because <clears throat> I was covering the central part of the Afghanistan, the province called Kapisa at the time, and and I actually got to go out, you know, in the field and um, see not necessarily projects, but again, drive around the country a little bit and you know, go to see how how people are working in military bases and stuff. Well, can I ask what specifically your job was? What, when you when you were working for the AI, what was specifically was your role? So I started as a provincial director, um, which was basically running a program in the province. I, you get a certain um, a budget. Um, I don't know, the, the, the whole program was, was giant. It was like hundreds of millions, but... <clears throat> over a period of time, but um, I got a budget for a year and a province and there was, you know, like a scope of work that we could work on. We, we worked on agricultural projects, um, 
which was basically employing or or working with local community to get them income generating projects <coughs> to get income generating projects so they don't join the the insurgents right um, provide some income for themselves and so they can provide for their families <coughs> so uh, so so eventually I got to um, I, I like that and I, I got to go out into the field which I was not able to do with the with the small company right and then in I was based in Kabul that whole time and in April 2010, the, the AI got an extension, uh, decided to, to extend their project to the north, which they were not covering at the time. And the office was supposed to be in Kunduz. So it was Kunduz province and Kunduz and Baglan province, uh, provinces, and, and the, the, that part of the project was to be run from Kunduz office. I was offered a job. Uh, of regional director for that uh, uh, for that part of the the project, and I accepted it, and that was it. The transition started. So, <coughs> can I ask two? Can I yeah. ask two questions? Sorry. Uh, so, um, one, who was funding? Who was funding the DAI to conduct the projects? And two, uh, development. Can you just describe when you talk about development? Just can you elaborate on that for me? Okay. So, it was USAID. So it's a United States um, government aid agency that was funding the, the the whole program, and what we did was uh, basically working with local government and uh, local communities, bringing them together and doing projects that they would agreed on, obviously, um, and employing the community members, right? So. But the local governance had to be involved because the idea was that they will eventually take over once the you know international aid is finished or the program is the AI program is finished. <coughs> so these projects were <coughs> agriculture uh, targeted at uh, at working age uh, community members and mainly men, but there were parts of the program that were targeting women as well, working with women. And uh, there would be agriculture, so um, orchards and, you know, vegetable and animal uh, husbandry and projects like that. It will actually really get people to work, go to work every day and get them results or over a year time. So, you know, there's some income generating there that they actually see the results of. Uh, and they don't have to wait for, you know, the, the yes, exactly. So, so it prevents them, you know, to that actually bring them back to leading a normal life, so to speak, right? Um, working for as themselves. A, as opposed to what? What were they? What were they doing that needed to be changed? Well, in depending on the type, the, on the part of the country, like southeast, for example, was as as you probably know, or or south of the country, there was a lot of insurgents, and there was a lot of insurgents activities. So, you know, they could join as well, right? They have to provide somehow for their family, right? So, if they can't do it in an honest way by finding a job and doing something, they will do it by being an insurgent and being you know, or joining 
cultivating crops that are not desirable, right? So there's a lot of opium happening, uh, production going on in, in the South, right? As you know, so. Can we spend a few minutes on this at the moment? I didn't think, I didn't realize actually that we, we well, I would want to do this, but one of the, uh, you know, my background, you know, you, you might have Dave and Dave's got similar background to my, myself, very similar, <laughs> very similar. <laughs> um, uh, so I, I talk a lot to people about, uh, about, Afghan campaign, Iraq campaign, the not legitimacy, but the the ethical and moral reasons for going in there should we have gone in, blah blah blah, all that. One of the one of the things I think I've come to believe, based on the limited conversations I've had with predominantly ex-military folk around it, and my own think, <coughs> my own sort of thinking of it, is that a is that in terms of a long-term impact. Or, in the first place, a need for us to be there. By us, I mean the royalists. I mean military, I mean aid workers, that whole people there to, in inverted commas, improve Afghanistan, right? Now, you've got a perspective that I have not spoken to people about like this before, okay? And plus, you know, I trust you implicitly and I, I really respect you and you're a really knowledgeable individual. Um, and you're able to articulate your thoughts and feelings really well, okay? And especially in the stuff, the loads of stuff that you know that I don't know, you can just teach me, right? Mm-hmm. Now, from your perspective as an aid worker, um, was that work needed? When we're talking about the, let's talk about the opium trade and the poppies, okay, where they, you know, the farm workers and the agriculture grow in that because they get paid a lot of money or get paid more money by um, the insurgents, by the Taliban, by whoever, to produce that so they can go flog it off for the, the drug trade, right? Would they be doing that any, would, would, would they have been doing that, Would if there was no foreign military in Afghan, right, they would have been doing that anyway, right? That was just a fact of life of what was going on in Afghan, was it or not? Well, it's, it's and the reason I ask is because if that's a fact <clears throat> of life, then is it even possible to change it? Mm. Well, it depends on the po- on the consequences, consequences, right? Like if there is if there is a consequence, serious consequence for for people doing that, as in you know they will end up in. Oh, if they don't do it. You mean yeah? If they don't, if they don't, if they don't, if they don't uh, grow the opium partly they're going to get they're going to get killed they're going to be consequences so if they if there is that you you will do anything to protect your family feed and protect your family right like that's just logic there's no you know there's no well there's no philosophy there it's just pure maths you're going to do it or you're not or you're not going to be there right so if you if if you end up dead who's going to feed your family what's going to happen to them right so you do what is necessary to protect and feed your family. Now, if if there's a change coming and there's some alternative, more honest ways introduced, it is a choice whether you're going to be, what are, you, what are you going to be punished for or what are you not going to be punished for? Or what is better? What is more long-term? you know, valid for, for you and your family, right? Because people, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're going to give, if you're going to be given a choice that will still provide for your family, maybe not in as well, but long-term is a better option, you know, what are you going to go for? 
what will be the choice that you're going to go for right and and whatever choice people make you can't really judge them for it right mm. because that is the best decision that they are making under the circumstances and because we are not in the same position we cannot judge Right. So from then, from a DAI perspective, from the aid worker perspective, what you were doing, you were there to provide alternative, al alternative ways of providing for the family and alternative ways to keep your family safe than the yeah the regime, regi but the, the, that way that was being done with yes. the opium. Right? Yeah. So I love talking to you. So, um, so from your perspective then, and yours is a more uh, like a, a more higher, a bigger overview of what was going on in Afghanistan, and uh, yeah, and and you could see that sort of the the holistics of it all, at the impact of everything on a holistic from a holistic perspective, it was the right thing to do the campaign. Generally speaking, I think the way. The you see, this is just yes or no, Billiana. <laughs> yes or no. <laughs> you see, I think there are ways to do the campaigns that will have less cost, human cost, and I firmly believe that. I don't believe that a country now. Just a reminder: I come from Serbia, right? So I think that there are different ways of coming into a country and with your with other ways right but that can be less cost to human lives other ways alternative military are you, are you are you talking broadly about you talking about political intervention right i'm talking about political but economic intervention as well because economic and political intervention is happening anyway and yes i understand that people are not willingly just going to let um foreign military come in, <clears throat> open the doors and come in. But I also think that there are different, more diplomatic ways of bringing influence, you know, economically, politically, and if it does require military, there's still more diplomatic ways to do it. I don't think that bombs are always the solution. I agree with you. I do understand that they are the fastest, maybe, way of entering. Um, but, um, and I, I, like, I totally get that, you know, I, I, I understand, but I think that, you know, it, it doesn't have to be the first option maybe. Yeah. I, I agree with you. I just like you, 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 oh, you made the point before I, you could see what I'm going to, you can see, who, it's, it's, it, I think to do the other ways without the other ways they're the right ways to, to bring about influence if if influence in a country is right in in a big way is the right thing to do there are ways to do it. it just takes a, it would take a long time and the reality of the situation is like uh you know governments and premiers are not in power for 10 15 20 25 30 yeah. years as you're talking about yeah. and, but even so in the military way it still should take a long time you know yeah. no i i mean let's not i don't want to label this is perhaps a different podcast right but i didn't want to label i just really interested your perspective on it from that you like i said you've got a much bigger overview i see it from the on the ground military perspective and how much impact we had in areas and and I, it's, i've always questioned around did I have recently questioned around it if they if the Afghan people weren't asked, bothered, if they're just gonna revert when we leave to the same old thing that they've always done, then what what's the point 
really. But it, that's a very simplistic way of looking at it. Very simplistic way of looking at it. And the, also, sorry, the reality is that we we left, mm-hmm. as in the British military left. Aid work hasn't left. Mm-hmm. The influence now hasn't left. That's all still going on. You know, it's just with the military leaving, it gives a sort of it gives the tal- the Taliban or whichever armed insurgency mm-hmm. armed asshole pardon the language the ability to go back yeah. in and re-influence and get those people to do whatever they want to do <clears throat> for that money and threaten the families and stuff um, yeah it's 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 quite a tricky one isn't it it's very difficult because i think that because as you know military interventions are really costly right like the unbelievably amount of money goes into them i'll give you a different word Military interventions are really profitable. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. So it depends on the perspective, right? So if we can redirect that money right into rebuilding the economy instead of, you know, which would be another, another option, and it might be idealistic, but, you know, it's down to the interest, down down to the options available, down to the fastest solution, you know, um, point of entry. So it's it's really like what you know, what are the approaches? And these have been the approaches for the for the centuries before. So, you know, obviously we're sticking to the ones we know, but we are not necessarily learning new lessons. You know. So. Okay, cool. Right. We've cover that base i'm glad we had a little <laughs> that's my mind that's me getting no sleep now for the next three months like oh god what about what we said <laughs> um okay so where were we you were you were you oh yeah regional the regional director mm-hmm. covering uh kunduz and bagram province uh, but yep. you were geographically going to be situated in kunduz yes so um the house was you know found they found the, the house like in the the other provinces so basically it's the house that serves the purpose of office and the um, accommodation and the house was there the house was being prepared it took about two two months or so to to get it ready according to the standards uh, especially security um standards that were required uh for afghanistan and um and we moved in, I think it was early May, I believe it was early May. 2010. 2010, that's right. And my team was, it was 11 of us expats. So the team obviously was formed. You know, it was it was actually quite fluid at the beginning because we had people coming in to prepare the work for us and then not necessarily staying with us, going back to Kabul. And then we were in the process at the same time of hiring, you know, like contracts officer, finance officer, um, provincial directors and uh, this or that. So, so it was the same with the security team. I had appointed, I already had... Um, regional security manager appointed by EI, and EI was dealing, um, Edinburgh International was the contractor who was taking care of the security of the whole program. So um, I already had RSM, and I had a deputy, which was Sean. Um, He just arrived into the country. A deputy security manager? Yes. Um, and uh, then I had guys coming in and out, you know, train the local 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 security um, 
detail for, I don't know, driving and, you know, just things around the house and uh, setting up the systems and stuff like that. And I had uh, two Filipino guys with me and then there was a German, Reuven, who just joined the team as well and was staying with us, was there to stay. And then because we were preparing the a smaller office in Baglan province, we were in the process of, you know, kind of deciding who's going to go where, um, kind of separating teams and then hiring local staff for that um, smaller office as well. In Kunduz, what was the... Can you remember what the main aim of focus of development was there? Was there a specific main problem in that, in that, in that province that you were looking to, to deal with first? What was the priority? It was the same, same as in the rest of the country. And what I was doing for the first couple of months when I arrived, I was visiting all the organizations, international, um, non-governmental and governmental organizations, and kind of uh, feeling um, what they are doing so we don't duplicate the the work you know so we kind of cover areas that are still in the scope of our program but uh, were not covered by by other organizations so that was which is pretty much approach of um, anyone who arrives new now the thing was because we were the u.s based organization we were not very people were friendly but they were not happy with us coming in because my security team was armed, right? And a lot of non-governmental organizations will either not have security team or if they do, they will not be armed. So having armed security on compound makes them a target. So they were not always happy with us coming in for a visit or they would choose to either come to our house, which was also not very popular because our house was under armed uh, security. So it was a little bit of, you know, diplomatic play and kind of softening the the relations, that welcoming atmosphere that that kind of developed when we arrived into the area because Americans were by definition a target. Armed Americans were definitely a target. And was that the logic behind... Uh, you may or may not know. I'm assuming that the logic behind the, having having the, your team uh, being having your team armed, I'm not that it was your decision, but having the, the logic behind having your team armed is because it was a U.S. agency and, and you were de facto a target straight away anyway. So I guess there there was a mixture of all you know of a lot of um, yeah, it was a mixture of a lot of. Uh, things that were in a play, you know, it was, yes, Americans, um, it was the biggest program, you know, the, obviously they were, they were valuing their staff and, you know, their assets and, you know, protecting it in the best possible way. So, you know, it's a, it's the approach as well of the, of the program and approach of the, the country that is uh, financing the program. You know, Germans, for example, have a very peaceful um, approach to everything. They don't have security. They don't have any armed, um, especially not armed security. You know, so they have very, uh, very soft approach to, to development work. 
you know. And even though we were not military related, our program was absolutely not military related. We worked with the military in the country, obviously, because, you know, they, they were a valuable asset to us. Um, but with information, with uh, resources that they have, with, you know, so we, we obviously security uh, as well, because they had very good overview of what is happening and the, you know, the players, uh, but, but at the same time, we were not, our program was absolutely not uh, military oriented, you know, but we did have armed, uh, armed security. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And what, uh, was there any, what bases were nearby? Kunduz, were there many? Because I mean, Bagram, Bagram is a massive US yes. airbase there, right? Yes. Um, and Kunduz, not so much. No, there, wasn't there was a. Base in Kunduz. It was no, not American, anyway. Uh, there was a small German base, um, well, smaller German base, and then there was um, um, 110th Mountain Division coming in um, because I guess that was the expansion the US had foreseen for that year because we expanded our program to the north and then um, the uh, mountain division was coming as well to um, as a support I don't know was it only as a support to our program but obviously it, it was becoming a part of the US um, you know uh, area of responsibility as well did the DII programs were they uh, how 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 much joint planning went into if you know to the DAI programs and where and what they were looking to achieve in line with what the military was looking to achieve was there any of that at a higher level or was it just a case of deconfliction well it 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 pretty much always goes with um you know like like Italian organizations would work in Italian area responsibility, uh, French or Spanish or Canadian or whatever, American, British, because these contacts are very easy to develop, obviously, and you have the, the you work for the same cause, right? It's just uh, covering different areas. So, you know, um, but it's, it's much, it, it's a logical approach, right? So it's, um, it's logical that you expand where you already have feelers in the field, be it, be it on the military side or on the, the aid side. It's just, uh, it's, it's just a practical approach. Mm. Do you know what's interesting? I never once remember when I was in Afghan. I, ne I don't once remember ever coming across an aid agency. But it was in Helmand the entire time, and it was, yeah. you know, uh, maybe, they were, maybe they were around in my third tour in some places. Um, I don't remember that, but then I wouldn't maybe just just an it's just an observation. Yeah. Definitely wouldn't happen in the first tour. Second tour, you're here, then everywhere. But um, what, I mean, on that. So if no, uh, yeah. In fact, if you were going into a, an area, so going out out of out of the base, um, and going into an area to do some key leader, key leader engagement or X, Y, or Z task, um, would it be a bad idea to be accompanied by the military or? Now, if it, if it was a benign area, accompanied by the military or, or beneficial, would you try and avoid each other or not? Uh, that's a good one. I would probably, um, as an aid worker, I would probably um, avoid it in places like Afghanistan because military is always a target or Iraq. Um, however, there are times when you have to go with the military because there's no other way that, that you will be allowed access to certain areas without military um, um, escort. So... Uh -huh. 
you know, depending on the area of the country, some, some, as you know, you know, like South where you guys were, was quite heavy with, um, uh, with military action, right? But then in some other areas, like in the East, for example, of Afghanistan, there were incidents, you know, they're like isolated uh, incidents, but there was, there was no operation constantly going on on a daily basis. So, you know, depending, depends on the, on the area where you are. Okay. Um, where do we get to? Oh yeah, you, you yeah. decided who we're going to send to Bagram. You're in that sort of process, starting Bagram to set up Price, that, yeah. the mm -hmm. Bagram office, starting to set up who's going to go there, starting to put that those pieces in place. Yeah, so so we were we were working and so yeah, we were setting up the the operations. We were kind of um, laying the grounds for the for the. We hired the local office, uh, local staff. We were uh, introducing ourselves to the local government, to the different local organizations that we, you know, wanted to kind of speak to and introduce ourselves, but also see what are they doing and can we, you know, join efforts and work together. And um, we were learning as much as we could about the area from local um, local population, so including everything, our local staff, and that was one of my favorite things to do to chat with my local staff because there's no better insight into right where you are than than your um, people you work with. So, so we were going through the interviews and you know for project staff for our office, um, and yeah, that was that was quite intensive two months. Um, setting all that up and it was a big office so it was 11 of us expat the plan was to have 11 of us ex expats and then we had a team of nearly 90 local staff that would spread that would be working in our office but also were spread in different projects in so so that you know it was quite intensive we had interviews some days the whole day from eight in the morning until six in the afternoon so um it was interesting and we were at the same time furnishing the office and we didn't have a lot going, you know, there, but we were just moving in and out constantly. And because at that time the North was not as dangerous as some other parts of the country, like South, for example, um, yeah, our security team was obviously an alert all the time and they were, you know, um, checking out the routes and, you know, taking us different routes um, from the, the airport um, in and out and different parts of the town. But, but yeah, it was not, I didn't have the impression and that was not the part of the briefings. There were incidents, like we would have morning briefings, security briefings, um, but it was not as bad as as it was in other parts of the country. Oh, but Sean gives so. the briefings, would he? Sean yes, yes, okay. yes, yes. So it would be RSM, and then at the time that we're going to talk about, the, 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 at the time of the attack, my RSM was on, on leave. I just came back from my leave, and he was going to his leave. So I was on my leave in the U.S. I went to see my friend in D.C. for two weeks, in, and I came back on June mid to late June, stayed in Kabul for a week for, we had some uh, regional director meeting and it was important for me to attend obviously because it was my first orientation as a regional director. 
and uh, I was waiting for a couple of days to get a space on the flight from Kabul to Kunduz because I wasn't, we were not flying with commercial airlines, we were flying with USAID flights. And so my, my, my stay in Kabul kind of got extended a little bit longer than, than planned. And then on the same day, I arrived to Kunduz, which was, I don't know, maybe a week um, before the attack. So last week of, of, of June. And then uh, Ryan, my, my RSM, was leaving on the same flight back to Kabul to go on his leave. And, uh, and yeah, I was, um, I was going through the approvals. I, I was getting the briefing straight away in the car um, about the situation in, in, the, in the region from Sean. And he was telling me what uh, what has been going on in the office, how I, you know the process of hiring everyone is going, and and uh, just before I I boarded the the plane uh, in Kabul, I approved a, a travel request for another EI person, and I thought it was you know someone to give training in whatever driving or procurement or whatever it was, radios. Um, it was um, Dave Hutchinson. So I was like, okay, so so who is this guy now? You know, because there was some, always someone coming to um, to the region. He said, oh, he's one of my best friends. He's coming to, he's our new guy, you know. So, uh, and I actually spent in, in Kabul a few days in the office and I, I never came across him because it was, I mean, headquarters was really huge in, in Kabul. It had 10 houses, so the compound was quite big. So I was like, okay, so when is he coming? He's coming on Wednesday. And that was that was Monday that I arrived to, to Kunduz. And so he's coming on Wednesday, and I'm like, okay, bring him in as soon as he arrives, you know, so we can uh, we can get to know each other and, and kind of start because it was summer. I just came back from leave, so, you know, I was planning to go full power to everything that needs to be done, and it hasn't been done for the past couple of weeks. So... Um, so on Wednesday, they arrives, and uh, we are introduced. Uh, he comes to my office. We kind of, I introduce myself. I introduce the rest of my team, and we plan a big security meeting with our local national staff for the next day, so Thursday, right? What day? What day was the attack? Friday, early morning. Okay. And. Uh, it's Thursday. We have this huge meeting. Like all our national staff in the office is at the meeting, and we are going through all the procedures. You know what happens in case of, right? And then, in case of different situations, A, B, C, D, and what is the plan and channels of communications, and you know, you don't come to the office, or when do you come to the office, or you know, things like that. And the meeting lasts for like three or four hours. We're going through different procedures. We are, uh, and, and because they're working for a different type of organizations with a different type of security, we want to be clear. We're going in details, you know, answering all the questions. We're talking about armed security and, you know, handling their concerns about being a target and not being a target and what to do in so that's Thursday, right? We finished this long day of meeting. I also have a big meeting with uh, women organizations from the area. Fem female, yeah. Yes. 
in the afternoon again for a couple of hours talking to them about different things initiatives that they already have what we are you know what we would like to do introducing our work and where we want to go what are the areas that we want to explore and and um I book a lot of follow-up meetings with the individual organizations because um, it was actually a real refreshing part to work with women in Afghanistan, you know. So these were Afghan organizations? Yes, local Afghan organizations. Afghan organizations, Afghan female organizations. Yes. They must be some tough ladies. Yes. Jesus. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Wonderful ladies. Uh, very strong, uh, you know, uh, but at the same time, um, very empathic, very loving, very, you know, with vision and they know exactly where they want to go and they know exactly what they want to do to get there, you know, and how they, they have approached developed. And that was really, really refreshing. You know, it was really um, motivating and inspiring as well. So I'm like, okay, yes, this looks really good. And then, uh, so that's 1st of July, right? That Thursday. And we have dinner and we're thinking, so Friday was in the, in the evening, we, we had dinner in our, um, in our, in our house and on the top floor of the house. Well, I was going to ask, what, what was the, what was the house like? What was the layout like? So where did you sleep? Where did you eat? Right, so, what did you... Yeah. So it was a big house. Where was for... the gym? Where was the jacuzzi? <laughs> <laughs> So we have, um, it, it was a four story house, um, uh, include, so ground floor and first floor offices, were offices. So, so, yeah, I, I, what I'll do, I want to share the picture of the house. So I saw the yeah. picture of the house in the news after obviously what was left of the house. Yeah. Um, it was big, right? Four stories. Go it on. was big, four stories. So it was, uh, uh, the, the ground floor was obviously security and the HR office. Um, but most of it was security, you know, because the guys needed a lot of space with cameras and cameras were on the house. And um, at the Grand Center, they also, there was a big gym, but they also used it as a training for, for the local staff as well. Um, there was uh, uh, first floor was my office um, and all the provincial uh, directors and then the top two um, floors were our living living parts so we had kitchen there each of us had our own um room which was also could be used as a it was spacious enough to be used as an office as well um because when you don't really work there, there's nothing else to do apart from work and pretty much eat especially in the province you know because you can't really go out and uh, you know you can't go for a walk or go to the to a restaurant or a pub um which was very different than in kabul but um but yes, so so the same house is used pretty much divided into parts, living quarters and, and working area. And um, we had a big yard as well in the front um, with the with a high wall and inside were uh, sandbags uh, for protection. And then the guys were also around the house, running around the house that was there uh, morning. Um, um, PT. PT routine, yeah, running around the house and and doing training there. Uh, the cars were parked inside, 
Um, and yeah, it was a nice, it was a nice porch area actually outside, right in front of the security office. We could sit there and have a coffee or a cigarette. And, um, was it smack in the center of town? Or was it? It was reason? just outside the center of the town, but it was visible. It was one <coughs> of the highest houses in town, and from across from us was like a newly built hotel, just across the street from us. But it was quite um, visible because the paintwork on the house was quite interesting. It was green and pink with some flowers and the, on, on the your pillars. House. Yes, on your house. yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it had tall pillars. It was. Um, it was pretty looking house, but it was not decorated the, the, in the nicest way. But um, it was green and pink, and I think you will be able to see that on the on the photo of what is left. Um, but there were there were balconies on uh, many of the rooms. There was a a nice big balcony on the top where we used uh, where where uh, it was like a dining area. It was right in front of my my room or my office and RSM's uh, room. So we had a like a dining area for inside, but we also had a beautiful big balcony that we would use to do barbecue, for example, in summer. And and um, uh, Joben, one of my uh, Filipino uh, security detail, he did a, a brilliant barbecue and uh, did a couple of times for us. And... Uh, and yeah, we would just put layout because, the, as you know, the the summers are quite warm and they start really early. So we spend a lot of time out, outside on the balcony to to eat and have meetings. And um, so yeah, it was nice and spacious house. And uh, we had the idea was to have all eleven of us uh, living there, so we all had our own room. And um, and yeah, and then the, the working area was with a lot of local staff, about twenty local people. That it includes security guys as well uh, were there, and then we had guards obviously outside uh, on the gate. Nobody could enter the the Afghan, compound. Afghan guards. Afghan guards, yes. Nobody could um, enter without checking in with them first. Yeah. So Thursday, second of July evening, you're eating on the top floor. So we were, yeah, we finished our dinner. It was quite warm. We were sitting outside in the on the balcony, just chatting. Um, and we agreed that Friday was a, a non-working day. It was a day off. And it was a day off, but I mean, you would always still end up in the office doing stuff because, you know, there's nothing else to do. So um, so we agreed, um, I agreed with Sean to go through the database with him on Friday morning after breakfast because every project that we were doing, security guys had to approve. Right, so they would know exactly where the area of the project is. They would know who is the staff, who are the staff members who are working, and they would have to give the green light to on the database um, that the project is go ahead. Right, so I needed to take him through the database and tell him exactly what are the steps that he needs to go through to approve that because RSM was out uh, on leave and he was the one taking over the you know approval of the project. So we agree on that. 11-ish after breakfast, have an easy morning, and then sit and just work on the database <coughs> as long as we need. And then uh, at um, 3 o'clock in the morning, 3-ish o'clock in the morning, I was woken up by an explosion. And what I remember, the first thing th that I remember was that explosion and me opening my eyes and seeing I was, I was sleeping in front of the window 
um, kind of seeing to me that looked like in the movie window falling down even though they were what is that thing that you put on the window so they don't the, shatter the grill like a grill across it yes there was like um or a film like a foil film oh, yeah, 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 yeah um so that is the whole window is falling down on me and i'm jumping out of the bed so you know the window is falling and me coming up and i i i sit down next to my bed trying to cover my head everything is dusty it's dark um and i can hear but but i also noticed that my door that was closed uh, i i close my door when i go to bed it's out of the frame and my bathroom door is out of the frame as well the door's been blown off yeah so and you know that my my wardrobe is the doors of my wardrobes are all over the place and you know I, I i realize that it's a it's a huge explosion but i don't realize that you know how powerful actually it is and then i hear um there's no lights in the house we always had a light in the hallway and i hear sean coming up and shouting where the the clients calling calling us to to you know to to say something to, that we are okay. So I tell him, I'm okay, I'm in next to the bed. He comes in, it's all dusty. So the dust is still settling down. So it, it looks very, yeah, foggy, smoky, dusty. Um, and he grabs my hand and tells me to run up to the rooftop, uh, to the roof of the, the house and the, the stairs to the roof were right, starting right in front of my room. So I go up and then I, I go up first and I, the rest of the, the guys come up. It was at, the, at, at that night, um, it was me in the house, five of us all together, so seven of us all together. Um, Dave, Ruben, um, Joe Ben, Sean, and Mike and Dan. And we end up all on the roof. Uh, we can hear gunfires uh, we can hear th there's a lot of noise and then on the rooftop there's uh the, the ruben job and dave and, and sean they're our security team and three of us are just just around there was like a water tower on the um on the rooftop and uh we were just sitting there and they tell us not to move and four of them are discussing what to do you know, like what, what's going to happen because our safe room was in the basement. <laughs> so, uh, so they're like, okay, we're going to stay here, you know, but they need to, they, they're talking about what's going to happen, like what they need to do because we don't know what, who is in the house, what happened, how many of them is in the house, you know, what are we going to do? And it's pitch black. Yes. So it's three in the morning. It's very hard to do, very sticky. Um, already because it's July, it's north, it's very humid, uh, but but it's yeah, it's very warm and uh, and dark. So they decide to Sean decides to send Jobin and Ruben down downstairs to, to kind of yeah. Jobin and Ruben, yeah, uh, to see you know to kind of investigate what what's happening um they're trying over the radio as well to reach our um security team local security national security team t uh, at the gate 
the gate is blown off. Um, the gate's blown off? Yes. Um, and yeah, I'll, I mean, I'll tell, I'll go back later to what, what happened, but, um, so yeah, we, we're sitting, I, I, at that point, still, I'm still not realizing that we were the target, you know, that, that actually, I, I'm, I'm thinking in my head that somebody attacked the hotel that was just across the street and that, that what happened in my room and what's happening now is actually the result of that attack. Like all the destruction in our house, it's actually collateral there damage. Is a, yes, right. yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, so the guys are the, the, the Ruben and Jobin go downstairs. Um, th uh, they, the Sean and, and Dave, they have radios, and the communication is happening. But at one point, Sean is calling for the guard the 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 guard commander local guard commander and there's a voice in the radio says guard commander is dead so at that point i realized that whoever is on the other side is actually the attacker on the radio yes and that we are the target so that they are there for us and um i'm 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 sitting there i i don't know if i'm scared or confused or angry and the the things are going through my head that you know what 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 are the next steps like what's what's going to happen to us so the worst scenarios are going through my head, right? Especially for me being a woman. And and at one point we hear the gunshots. The gunshots are, are happening all the time. So there's constantly noise of shooting and some and then So it's so a while Sean and Dave and Ruben and Joe and Joan uh do it getting together to do the plan. There's a firefight going on in the background. Yes. It's happening within yes. the compound. Yes. There's just a cacophony yes. of noise. Okay. Ex exactly. And and um and then at one point we because right, the important thing was also that there was no communications in the north during the night. So the the phone, mobile phones were shut off. And there was only one network that was doing, which was some Chinese network if I if I remember correctly. And the phones were very small, like very old uh, mobile phones. And we had them. And we had the number of the police commander in the, the, the regional police commander, right? So because the guys, the same way I was networking with the organizations, obviously our security was networking and, you know, introducing themselves to, to everyone. So, um, so we have that little phone. All other phones are, are cut off. Um, and Sean is trying to reach the regional commander, the, the police uh, regional commander on the phone, gets to him. And obviously, you know, it's a small town. Everybody heard that something happened, the explosion. So they show, the police arrives in front of the house and they park on the street right in front of the the hotel is the f is the 
is the fight still going on as this happens? Yeah, 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 yeah. There's there's all sorts of gunshots being fired. I can't tell who it is. I'm expect I'm I'm thinking that that's our our guards, our our national guards, and Jobin and Ruben, right? And the attackers. But I have no idea how many attackers is there or 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 who is it. So so at one point Sean is trying to reach Jobin and Reuven. They are not getting anything back from them. And Sean tells us um, that we need to leave the house. You know, because if we stay, we don't stand a chance. So the police who, who arrived in front of the house joins the, all the, the fighting and, and shooting. And they are shooting to inside the house. Somebody is shooting from inside the house at them. But, okay, maybe Ruben and Joe. Maybe, we well, yeah. But don't, um, don't know, okay. And, and Sean says <coughs> on the phone with the command, regional commander, police commander, he's telling him, right, we, you, we, you need to come and get us and escort us out. And obviously the police commander is saying that he's not going to do that. Um, but the, but the gunshots stop at one point. So there's silence, right? And we hear the co police commander sh shouting that we, it's safe that we can come down, right? To come down and they will take us away into safety. So David and, and Sean decide that we have to go because otherwise we, you know, we're going to, we're going to die there. So we start going down. Uh, David is f going first, Sean in front of me, me, and then Mike and, and Dan behind me, where my, my uh, two American colleagues. And David, go, David goes first. We come down to my floor, to, to the fourth floor, top floor, um, and then go around to the second flight of stairs, go down as well. It's fine. And then at one point, I just see some movement. It's still dark in the house, right? But I see a movement because the offices were on the, on the side. So there were two offices. One of them is mine, where I was sitting. Sorry, that was on the second floor. And, uh, and there's, there's a shadow coming from my left. So David goes into that room to clear the room well, goes into on the door, right? And Sean is two stairs in front of me. And there's a shadow coming out. And Sean falls down in front of me. And I hear, there's, there's again shooting happening. There, you know, there's shots coming from every side. And I feel pain in my right arm. It's like a stab, like a sharp stab. When did the shooting start? When did the, when you're going down the stairs? When did, did that start? Uh, so as when Sean goes down. So so we down. so the David leads right. David leads comes down on the fourth floor. We're following behind him, and there's there's a there's a space bef between us as well because that's how you know they instructed us how to do it, and we go to the second floor. It's still silent, and um, the, Sean just said to the commander that we're coming down. We're like we're on our way down. And on the third flight of st on the 
from when we were coming from the third floor to the second floor at, towards the bottom of the stairs. So David was first, came into the hallway, and on the left-hand side, he's thinking of going in to clear the room to see what, you know, if there's anybody there. Um, and then there's, and then it starts, the, the shooting starts. Um, so David's there, Sean is right in front of me, and there's a, there are two doors on the left-hand side. So David is in one, one door. The door closer to me, there's a shadow coming out. Sean falls down to shoot the, the fires, the, the fire, the, the sh yeah, the, the gun That's is fired. Sean falls down. I feel the pain in my right arm. And I look at it, and the only thing that I say is in Serbian, and I say, fuck, they shot me. And I, and I hear, go upstairs, you know, turn around, get upstairs. And I turn around, and to me, that all happens like in a slow motion. Obviously, that's not the case, but to me, it's just like a really weird, bizarre experience. Like I'm detached, you know, like I see myself from somewhere else. So I turn around, I go back up, and I just um, hide myself behind so nobody can see me from the stairs if they, if they start coming up after me. There's David, David running up. I could see him with a corner of my eye trying to pull Sean. And Sean, Sean is not moving. So David leaves him there, comes back up because there's there's fire, there's there's gunshots all the time, and we sit uh, sit against the wall, and David said says to me, "I need you to put the tourniquet on my arm," and I tell him, "I I can't, I'm shot as well." Oh, because Dave was shot. Dave was shot. Yeah, so he was shot actually. One one. Um, bullet brushed his back back of his leg but that was just really nothing uh, really just a scratch and then the next um, uh, bullet was in his arm so um, he can't hold his um, hold his weapon anymore so we go upstairs and Dan one of my colleagues he's a Vietnam War veteran so he takes the gun and sits in front of the door lies down in front of the door to the to the balcony on the top floor and says you know like he was our our line of defense and he says i'm going to shoot whoever shows up at the bottom of these stairs you know i'm going to kill them and david's like yeah go for it so we are sitting there david's bleeding quite badly um another colleague mike uh, puts a tourniquet on him, uh, but but he was putting the tourniquet on, and you can you can hear it crunch, you know. Um, so yeah, my I stopped bleeding straight away, uh, but and and it doesn't really hurt at, at that point yet, uh, but it's just that red gap, you know, from my arm that I've never seen anything like that before in my life. And because David is bleeding quite badly, we we turn around all the way back from this from the entrance to the balcony, and we sit there, and the RPGs start hitting the house. And and they kind of we, we can 
we can hear them the the bottom like the the ground floor first and we don't have we have one radio we don't know we we were not down far enough to meet or see Jobin or Reuven. We don't know whether they're uh, still fighting or are they dead. Um, we think that, Sean, I am convinced that Sean is still alive and that he will appear at one point at the top of the, you know, at the entrance to the balcony because I don't want to believe that he's dead, right? And uh, and we getting our phone rings, the little phone, and it's a U.S. lieutenant who is um, like a surgeon, a uh, military surgeon, and he he call, he's calling us from the base. Right, because we called for help for the German forces, the German base. And they tell us that they are going to assess the situation and uh, let us know whether they're coming to help us. Uh, how did you get hold of the German base? So we had, when while we were there, we were networking, right? So we um, arranged a meeting with the... With the German base and German 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 military, and then met with some American military as well, um, and kind of established contact also with the with the medical team, uh, just to establish contact in case we need anything to let them know that we're there. That you know, ask can we count on their help in, in case we need any, and we obviously get confirmation that we can until the situation happens, right? So we, the, the, the German army tells us that they are going to assess that. And we, we're counting on their help also because we have a German member of our team, right? And at one point, I don't know how, how much longer after that, they call us and they tell us that they can't come to the rescue because they don't have enough information about the situation in the house. Or, you know, about the number of attackers, what, you know, how armed they are, blah, blah, blah. So we realized that we're on our own until we have, so, so we let our team as well in Kabul know what is happening. And our security in Kabul is trying to liaise through the military channels to the base and they're constantly on the phone with us so they're calling us really every every few minutes to tell us what's happening where they are in the process and then we also get because we we told tell them that we are injured David and I were shot they we get a call from the um, US uh, surgeon who, who who calls me and tries to kind of ask you know what kind of injuries we are we have and you know can he be of any help until help arrives so is any of us in life danger so 
I tell him that I stopped. He he tells me to explain my injury. I'm like, I, I don't know. A part of my arm is missing. And, you know, I can't really explain that because um, David's quite bleeding, bleeding quite a lot. And uh, we're trying to tighten that tourniquet as, as much as we can. Um, but in the end, we, we are sitting in his blood, right? Um, so, so, and he's... He's he's hanging in there, but he's losing. He's you can see that he's getting weaker with every minute. And the the noise these RPG hits are actually coming up, you know, like okay, it closer. was yes, up the floors. Yes, up the floors. So well, you know, is, oh yeah, no, go on. Sorry, I we are thinking like David's convinced that that's the police from across the the street. You know, the, the police is actually trying to clear the house or, you know, fight whoever is in the house. We are trying to tell the commander as well that, that we have people in the house who may still be alive and we want them to, to stay alive if, you know, um, or we want them if they are injured, we want the police to somehow get in and, and extract them. Like, you know, take them to safety. Yeah. RPGs and isn't going to help that. Cause. Yeah, exactly. But, but you know, um, so I'm right. Was it the, was it the police? What did you find out after? Don't know. Yeah. Well, David is convinced that they were part of the the attack. Actually, um, complicit. Yeah. Yeah, he said that to me before. Yeah. Um, and um, you know, the, at at one point as well, house house the, the fire in the house starts. And the the balcony, the the house is is on fire, you know, from all these hits that um, that and RPGs that were fired at the house. So we are on the on the balcony, on the top balcony, and we are right above the kitchen with all the gas bottles that we use for cooking, right? So the house is on fire. We're sitting right on top of the 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 these gas bottles. And the house is at the same time being hit with RPGs. And I'm sitting next to David, uh, and he at one point puts puts his hand on my hand and says, looks at me and says, you do know that we're going to get out of, out of this. And I look at him, and, and I know that he, I, I realize he's just saying that so I would feel better, you know, but there's absolutely no way that we are coming out of there alive, right? So I look at him and says, I know. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, of course we are, because there's no other way. So, so but at the same time, I, I'm thinking, I kind of, I was scared. You know, I was angry at first. I was confused. I didn't know what was going on. And then I was scared. And then at one point, I'm peaceful. And that's really weird to explain. I'm peaceful and I'm thinking, I never told my mom that I love her. You know, and, um, and I'm thinking, I'm gonna die and she won't know that. And then I think about all, all my friends that uh, I never told them how much I appreciate them, you know. 
but I'm calm. So, uh, the noise is still there. We're getting um, calls every 20 minutes, and the, the, the lieutenant, the surgeon, he tells us, okay, I'm going to call you to every 20 minutes, but do call me back if the situation worsens, right? So, these um, explosions also are happening in the house. And we don't know, because we realize that there are attackers in the house. We don't know how many of them. But, you know, it's like knowing everything that is happening. We're like, okay, they're suicide bombers. But we don't know how many of them. Why, so, did, you, but, why did you come to that conclusion? It's just because we... I can't remember, did we hear... I heard. I heard later. I heard later uh, that it was five. I, I heard yes. it was five suicide bombers. It was five in the house and that six of them all together because one of them blew themselves. Right. Blew them one of them blew. Th so they attacked. One of them blew themselves at the gate to take out the gate yep. guard at the gate. Yeah. The other five went into the house, start clearing the house with small yes. arms with AKs, and at a point started detonating themselves yes. through the house. Yes. Right. That's what yes. I heard. Yes. I don't know. I, I don't know who I heard that from, but there's been. I've heard. I've I've only ever heard this story from Dave in a very limited fashion. It's something I haven't asked about. You know, I've never asked you yeah. about to speak. It's something you. you I, 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 I asked, maybe Dave has described parts of it to me. There were other people from Three Para, X Three Para, who were in Afghan at the time who work in security and then came to hear about other things. And so I've had bits and pieces of the story over the yeah. years. You know, um, uh, but yeah, that's what I've heard a few times. I think is the five suicide bombers. Yeah. Well, six. Uh, One on the gate, the rest yes. went in, start clearing the building to kill yes. you guys, and they start dating, them, dating yes. themselves in the building, which would explain the state on the building. Yes. So for people listening, watching, I, I'll, when I post this up, I'll share a Sky News link, and you'll, you'll see the, you'll see the yeah. carnage. Because the, this, the size of explosion and the sound of the explosion, they would be like, this is, you know, this is not RPG. Like, you know, he, he, would be able, he was able to tell what's what, and then at one point, as the RPG hits were kind of coming up towards the, the um, uh, rooftop, at what point it hits the, the wall of the balcony and the rubble hits David in the head, hits Mike in the head, in his eye, injures his eye. Um, and... I I feel like that that noise. There was con six hours of constant noise, either gunshots or RPGs. Like I I can't tell you, I can't explain you that it's that was it was just noise we could hear, right? And at one point, uh, David hears also RPG coming. Hears that whizzing sound and uh, and covers me, and gets another set of rubble in his head. And the 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 days the sun is high already. It's close to nine o'clock in the morning. It's very hot. So we go for six hours at this point. Over six hours. Yeah. The, the, six, and, six uh, the six whole hours. and the whole time this is a this is a contact the firefight going on the whole time. Oh, the whole time. Jeez. And we're at the same at the the whole time we're in contact with Kabul with our office in Kabul headquarters, um, with EI. Um, in Kabul as well, but also with the American army. And they are telling us, at one point we have two lines of communication. One is with the lieutenant who is the sergeant. And the other one is with the lieutenant who is coming with the patrol 
to the house to clear the house with Afghan commando unit. And he's calling me all the time because I, I take over now the phone because Mike is injured. So he tells me that they're in the house, that commanders are going in, they're going to clear floor by floor, and he's going to keep me posted and that we're doing brilliant job, right? So uh, he's, uh, he's, he's, he's there. He's, he's really calm. You in, know, he's in the house. He's in front of the house. Yeah. Commander team is in the house and he keeps telling me where they are. Now, at that point, we are on our ends and we have uh, Dan who's on, on, he's still with the gun. But he's going, at the same time, he's going through his um, flashbacks from Vietnam War, right? Jesus So Christ. he tells me, so he shouts at, to me to tell the lieutenant that he needs to see American soldier with American flag on his shoulder at the bottom of these stairs. And if he doesn't, he's going to shoot. At the same time, the American lieutenant is telling me to remain calm and the the person who will be at the bottom of the stairs first is going to be Afghan commando, commander of the Afghan commando unit, right? So I'm telling him not to do that, to send us the American soldier. He doesn't have to come all the way up. We just need to see him with the American flag at the bottom of the stairs, right? I think to be fair to Dan, it's not, it's not, I wouldn't suggest it's a flashback. That is Dan going, I've been here for six hours. Yes. Just gonna and I'm going to, yes. we ain't doing yeah. jack shit no. until I see yeah, a friendly exactly, face. Exactly. So, so, and, and Dan is saying, so I'm trying, I'm shouting back at Dan that they're going to do what they can. They can't send, you know, they can't show American soldier, but, and Dan is saying, I'm going to shoot. If he's not American soldier, I'm going to shoot him. So, you know, at, this, at somehow we come to an agreement to have commando and American soldier at the same time. But, you know, the American flag visible because otherwise they were gonna, there's going to be more blood there. And, um, and that's how it happens. And then we, David is, David is kind of losing his, um, he's, he's just about holding. He's completely pale, yeah, going green, you know, and he he lost a lot of blood, like everything is sticky around us and um and we but he he ha he he has he's strong enough to come down the stairs, right, and obviously the we all had our own um medic um assigned to us they take my my thing off because Mike put some gauze on me and uh, to take it off and put it straight back on. Nobody tells me anything. And obviously everybody is um, uh, trying to help David because he's just about holding it. They put us in the RPG. But at the moment when they tell us to come down, I, I stand at the top of the stairs and I have this flood of, like I felt I was like I was choking and I just want to, you know, sigh of relief to, to, and I, and I'm, I'm starting to cry, but then it, it hits me that it's not over yet because we have another five kilometers to the base, to our actual safety, and what if we get attacked on the way? 
So I, I choked that all back in, like, okay, you need to hold it. And then I come down and I mean my, because it was in the middle of the night, right? I slept in my boxer shorts and a, and a sleeveless top. So I come down and there's already at the top of the, on the fourth floor, there's already some journalists, local journalists, right? Well, Afghans. Yes. Right behind the soldiers when they came up, you know, they've got, I guess they figured that the house is cleared so they can come up. And I tell, um, I tell the, the medic, the, the American medic that is with me, I'm telling him I need some blanket to cover myself, you know, because I'm half naked in, in well, I'm in my boxer shirts. He tells me, ma'am, they can handle it. You know, like, don't worry about that. So they take us down and he tells me before, my, my medic tells me before we start down, he tells me, ma'am, I need to tell you that Right. We, when they picked us up, when we came down to the fourth floor, I'm trying to tell him that we have three people there, how they look and are they, have they seen them in the, you know, is any of them alive and have they seen them in the house? And he tells me, we are trying to explain David and I, David barely alive, uh, trying to explain that, uh, Sean looks, has darker, um, tan and he looks very much like Afghan, but he's British because uh, Sean had only um, bulletproof vest, no t-shirt. So they can see his tattoos and stuff. And he, we're trying to explain all that. And he, the, my, my Maddie guy tells me, ma'am, we're going to pass, but I don't want you to see that. So when I tell you, please just look at the back of my head, you know, when I give you a sign. So we come down. What he doesn't want me to see is Sean's body. But when we come to the second floor, right passing right next to Sean's body, there's an Afghan commando who comes out from that office and stops me and asks me to identify the body. And asks me, is this the British citizen that you were asking about? So I tell him yes. And the the, my medic guy says, ma'am, this is exactly what I didn't want you to see. So we go down, we come to the ground floor. What was the commander playing at? It's blatant. I think blatant. he's just... It, well, it's quite obvious. It's a, I know, I, don't yeah, just, I it's know. It's quite like, where's, you like tattoos, reg tattoo. No, the, 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 I don't the, know. The, the nature of the tattoo is different. But, uh, yeah. Not gonna ask, anyway, anyway. I don't, I don't know, you okay. know. Um, we come to the ground floor and there are two big blood puddles on the floor. Uh, they tell me that Reuven is um, dead in one of the bathrooms. Uh, died from his wounds. He was hit in the stomach and, and died, bled out. And we, we already also found out during the attack that the police managed to extract Jobin and take him to the hospital. Uh, and he was shot in his leg. In his stomach as well, but he had a, a vest on. So, um, so then they take us, they, they put us down into the, the, um, in the vans. David and I are in one, 
there's a bunch of reporters in front of the house. The whole front garden of the house is completely flattened out. The, the cars, the armored cars, look like they were made of paper. And it was just wrinkled. And the, the wall was gone, and the journalists were standing actually on the rubble of the wall. Like the, the sandbags, everything was gone. Um, and I mean, it, it, it looked like it, it six looked, hours of mayhem. Is what yeah, like. yeah, exactly. And we, we're taken into the vans. Uh, we're sitting there. David is, um, 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 you know, they're waiting for the other van as well to, for Dan and Mike to, because they want to organize a convoy. So, you know, to, to go all together and, uh, the, the medic in the car, the, the van, he's helping David um, and, you know, letting everyone know that there's emergency surgery that's going to happen as soon as we arrive. So we arrive to the base and he and and we're we're we have five kilometers, which is a really short ride um, in, in, in a military convoy. And. And and David is he he reaches out and, and wants to hold my hand. So I'm telling him we're nearly there. You know, like we we gonna we actually got out of there, and uh, and we get there, and that's when I break completely. Like I, I start crying, and uh, the medical uh, American doctor who I met in one of the meetings, she she tells me, oh, and I know you, and she asked me for my name, my position, just to see, you know, how how conscious I am, and do I know where I am, and. Um, and I tell her what happened and that we have two more, one of them is injured and, you know, I give her facts that I, that I have. And, um, and she gives me injections straight away and then, you know, we're laid out on, on four different tables and, and then when all the poking with needles and everything starts and um, they, they put us all together in one room. And that was quite weird because we were because we were together for so many hours and we went through that horrendous experience. We we were all in one room, but we would be dozing off and on, obviously, you know. And then as soon as we wake up, we were like, "Is everybody okay? You know, guys, are you okay? Is everybody in pain? Anybody needs anything?" And Dan is the only one who's not injured, so he gets his um, I don't know down the the line in 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 the hospital he gets his meal and he gets an apple and I look at that apple and I can, you know, I can, I can taste it. I can taste that apple. There's no water, no food, nothing, because they don't know whether we're going to go through the surgeries or not. And, uh, and, and I'm just looking at that apple and I want it, you know, like I, that, that's what I want at that point. Um, and the nurse comes in and asks me, you know, tells me that my surgery is going to be tomorrow morning. Um, and uh, David is still uh, in um, the surgery. His surgery lasted for, I don't know, three or four hours. And um, he's still critical but stable. Uh, they bring him in. But uh, she's asking me, do I want anything? And I said, I want apple juice. So she brings me apple juice. And... Um, and yeah, my my best friend, uh, who was uh, th then all the phone calls started coming in, you know, like uh, uh, family. I remember my my friend who was also um, she was a deputy 
chief party. She gave clear instructions to the Home Office in, in D.C. Uh, because the AI is DC based, not to call my mom. My mom doesn't speak English. So, you know, she's like, as soon as she hears someone speaking English and mentioning my name, she's going to think the worst, right? Obviously, nobody listened to that. So my mom received a call, was absolutely terrified, didn't understand the thing, but figured that something is wrong, that something is happening. Um, and my best friend got a call and her husband and I work together. So her husband asked, what is the status of the regional director? And she was at the same, at, at the time, they were in, in my hometown in Novi Sad. And she needed to go and tell my mom that I was shot. Like she, she tells me today, that is the hardest thing that I ever had to do in my life. Um, and yeah, we were taken to the safety. We were there for a day. I was, me and Dan and Mike were the first to leave, came to Kabul, stayed there for a couple of days. Um, and then from there, I was transported to Dubai. And that was really a bizarre experience as well, because uh, the, the uh, emergency services were waiting for me at the airport uh, to take me to the hospital. And, um, and Erica was with me, my, my friend and, and the doctor in the emergency services, he was asking me, so uh, what happened? And my friend is like, well, what happened is that we were attacked. They were attacked and she was injured. And where were we when you injured? Well, I was on the rooftop. And what was the time of the day? Three o'clock in the morning. So what were you doing at three o'clock in the morning at the rooftop? She's like, I don't appreciate your tone. Like, what? what is that insinuation? She was hiding from the terrorists. You know, like, what, what were you thinking? Just, okay. But it was just, yeah, it was from one extreme to another. And uh, it was, I, I spent a couple of days in Dubai and um, they asked me whether I want to, where do I want to go for treatment, for medical treatment? Because obviously everything was covered with the insurance. And, and I asked to go home, to go to Serbia. Um, because, yeah, we had, we had pretty good at war surgery, um, but also <laughs> very skillful. But uh, but also I, I had my mom there and, you know, my network. It was just easier for me to go there and then bring my mom to the U.S. or wherever to do. And, yeah, I, I went to Serbia and stayed there until November when I came to, to the U.K. Yeah. Ten years. Ten Down years, yeah. in a flash. Yeah. Flipping egg. I remember that. Uh, it wasn't a good day when that happened. Um, no, not at all. And uh, and then I remember you guys coming to live with yeah, my wife at the time, Shelley. Uh, that was later on, obviously, coming to stay with us. And um, how uh, how how difficult it was for to to move through on yeah. something like that. Um, you know, which you've spoken about before. Uh, I don't know. I mean, y y the thing is with something like that, uh, is you've experienced trauma right from when you were a kid. We, we mentioned it at the start of the podcast, you know, we've grown up in Serbia and there's different types and there's different levels of trauma and there's, and, you know, and there's different situations and different roles and responsibilities yeah. and what you're doing and you and you've, and you have different connections with the people around you involved in each, in each incident and, 
that one, you know, big one. It was a, it was a big one, you know. Yeah. And um, it's unfortunate that uh, so Sean died. It's unfortunate that Sean died, obviously. Um, and uh, was it Ruben? Ruben, Ruben, Ruben died, died as well. Died as well yeah. You know. Um, uh, yeah. And they were both fathers, you know. Mm. And that was that was the the hardest thing for me, I think, to the guilt that uh, I felt responsible and uh, and and why why them and not me for example yeah well, I think through your journey now you know that that's they're, 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 those are common feelings right I mean, yeah th that's not to normalize them uh, that's not me not me normalizing them at all but they're, they're yeah they're common feelings, especially for yourself in a position of authority like that like you were um how did you how did you how did you move through it? How did you get? How did you get to the position where you are now? Because I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have felt comfortable having this conversation with you five years ago. Yeah. A few years ago, not at all. You know, um, we kept it together pretty well in this podcast, <laughs> talking through yeah. it. Yeah. What? How? What? What's? You know. What's? I don't. I mean, you, you obviously you and Dave are now married, um, and uh, that must be. That must be a, a, a big. Is it an? Asset in a way to have some to be to 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 have that ex to be in love and be married to someone who you have that such a unique shared experience with, or is it a hindrance sometimes? I thought sometimes in the past I thought is it maybe a hindrance of that because uh, early on, yeah, because all you guys, it's like the. the it's like the, the always the elephant in the room maybe mm -hmm. when you're meeting new people or meeting people that you know anyway you know yeah. friends um and it when you you could be a constant reminder to each other of that incredibly yeah. sad time and incredibly difficult time that's it. i mean that's what i thought i don't know i'm asking what what's you know what's what's life like how do you get through it what's what's it like it's quite interesting now when i look at it look back at it um I think that helped us a lot um, throughout recovery to be there for each other and to kind of recognize and understand um, the, the bad moments that you go through, you know, the, the flashbacks, the triggers, the um, simply bad days, the day, the, the anniversaries, the birthdays. You know, because at at the beginning, especially, we had our our bad days that would just happen, um, and anything could trigger that. You know, the because there was so that this lasted for such a long time, six hours, and there were so many things that could remind us of. You know, like the smell of smoke, and you know the colors, the sounds, the you know banging of the door. Um, you know, s silly things like that, just really innocent things that we usually take for granted. Um, but um, I, I think that helped us because we understood each other and we kind of sometimes, or many a times, we actually went through, through things or situations without actually talking about it because there was no need to explain you know, we would understand. And I think that might have been more difficult if they, if we ha were with partners who never went through anything like that. Because you also don't know how to explain. 
Like, how, how do you explain that? Mm. You know, I, I don't know. You, you Maybe you would know, you know, things that you went through and your partner didn't. So there's always that. I don't know. It could be inadequacy or lack of understanding. Well, inadequacy on one side and lack of understanding on the other side. You know that where you have to explain, and and that person just simply cannot understand it. No matter how well you explain, they just can't understand it because they were not through. It, they, they didn't went through it. You know, it's hard to explain things, horrendous things like that, unless you go through. Yeah, you I, know. I remember you being in in whole days, just whole days, just in tears the whole day. Yeah, and locked in a bed in, in a bedroom, yeah. just in floods of tears, and um, I like I can understand that from just being around the yeah. just from our background yeah. you know um but uh, like you said it's very hard to articulate or explain it to someone because a lot of the time it, it's not even rational to you the person exper- no. experiencing it no. completely irrational yeah um uh and that's just the way the mind works yeah right? you know yeah. the cause but you don't understand the, yeah. the me- mechanism through which it's happening yeah. now yeah you know, it's really, really weird so it's really, I, I think it helped us. It helped us also, to me, the great how we were kids. Um, we will probably find out later that that was not maybe the best thing to do. <laughs> Have kids with that early. But um, but yeah, it, it helped because it gave us something else to focus on, you know, and uh, channel a lot of energy um, and feed off, you know, that that love. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, it was hard, but I do think that what helped was moving out to Serbia. Uh, as you know, we lived in Serbia for three and a half years and, and I think that helped because it took us out of that context, that world that we were in, because you guys all knew what happened. We all knew what happened. Uh, you know, we were always in that story. Whether we talked about it or not, whether we, you know, there was anything that would hint, it was always that world, right? Pictures of, of Sean in the pub or, you know, somebody always mentioning him, which was completely normal because he was such a big part of, of your life or... Um, he was a big personality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, was so biggest, <laughs> he was the biggest personality, arguably. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, it, it was just, it was, it was present all the time and and i think that helped us as well to take us out of the context and uh and get us out of it a little bit and and from this now i understand that it helped it didn't look like it it's helping then and and it was from a relationship perspective you know you always base uh, or you always start a relationship in something fun or you know night out or uh you know, I don't know, um, a big party or whatever it is, right? We started our relationship on a, on, and we were connected with something so deep and and dark. But um, but but def- that definitely makes us stronger. You know, like very uh, interlinked in so many ways. And there was never a, a, a time to worry, like, oh, what if he sees me in my worst? Because he already did, you know? So, um, so yeah, we could only go up from there. Um, and, yeah, 
here we are today. Here we are today, plant-based. I know. Serious question for you. Yeah. Did the plant-based diet, because you, you both, I think Dave did some crazy diet changes as well, didn't he, all the time. Did the plant-based thing, did that come about as a part of the, your, the, your mental recovery or grow, your growth, post-traumatic growth, your mental recovery and that journey to where you are now? Is that where it came from? That? So what happened was when we moved out to Serbia, right? So I had Shauna um, in, in 2011 um, and I, I didn't know how to cook. Right until really? Shauna was born. Hang on yeah. a minute, but your mother is a fantastic cook. She is, yeah, the best. Yeah, absolutely. Why did she not teach you? <laughs> Why did you not learn? Well, that's the thing. My mom is the coolest ever because she always told me you don't need to learn how to cook un until you actually need to, to learn how to cook. So don't worry about it. Once you need to, you will learn how to. And uh, that was that. I mean, I always loved my mom for that. So. Um, so when the time came for me to learn how to cook, which is when I got my first child, I was like, okay, I really need to tackle this now. <laughs> so, so, um, so my mom went to, you know, we lived in the same apartment building, right? And she always cooked for us. But then she was very inconsiderate to go for her holidays. Uh, one, one summer, she went for, to Greece for two weeks. And it was just me left now with, you know, my family to feed. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so that's how I started. But only when I started, I actually realized that it makes me feel better because although we had kids and we, um, we, we kind of focused on kids, th that was not enough. Like we needed... I needed something creative um, to to do something, but but I didn't realize that that's what I needed, you know, until it actually happened. Once I was clear that I will not be going back to my to my work that I really loved and enjoyed, and that was something that my aid work that that I saw myself doing for the rest of my life, I I realized I'm not going to go back to that. So I needed something else, you know, to, to create and, and feel purposeful, you know, like useful in that sense as well. So once I started cooking, I, I realized that cooking is that, that that's it. Like that gives me that sense of achievement when I, when I create something like that, you know, and, uh, and that's how I, how my my passion actually was was born. I I realized that oh wow I actually like this. I really enjoy it. So then I started kind of exploring and playing with it, and you know testing myself and uh, learning obviously with basic stuff, the things that we usually like Serbian meals and and traditions and cuisine. And um, and then when we moved to England. I got a, got a flair for Indian and Asian cuisine and Thai and Mexican and uh, Middle Eastern. Um, so I really, really liked it and got all these cookbooks and, and would spend hours in the kitchen um, doing it. And at one point, it, it was actually quite um, accidental that I, that I came across a documentary uh, about a guy, an Australian guy who um, who cured himself with plant-based diet. He was actually juicing everything. So I said, right, okay, 
I'm going to take it easy. I definitely not going to juice everything, but I can try with uh, What you mean juice and everything? What he was suffering. The documentary is called um, um, what was it? Fat, sick, and nearly dead, I think. And um, he he suffers from some skin condition, uh, debilitating skin condition. And he heard about juicing everything and created this um, five-ingredient green juice that he drank for five days, which was really some simple like lemon, celery, the green apple, and cucumber, and I don't know, kale, for example. So he did that for a month, and his skin cleared, and he was, you know, completely... Yeah, but he's cut. He's an elimination diet, right? He's cut. He cut out yeah, something. Yeah, everything. He cut, he cut everything. Right. He cut everything out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. But I was like, okay, but but there's there's something in it because he explained all the science behind it and you know how how it actually happens. So that got me thinking. Got Aussie me interested. Bro, Aussie bro science. Science. <laughs> Aussie bro science. That's what that is. Yeah. So so I was like, okay, well, this is really interesting, but. I, I got curious and I thought, okay, let me try a month. I'm not going to juice anything because uh, I like my food too much, <laughs> but, but I'm willing to try without meat for a month, right? So I tried without meat and I lost some weight and I felt better in the morning when I wake up. You know, I, was, I would usually feel um, like tired already. You know, you're getting up in the morning, but you already feel tired and it would be, my face would be puffy and... And that kind of reduced. So my energy level went up. It was only for a month. I just cut out meat, right? So I but said, did you wait a anything, minute. But did you cut anything else out? Um, no, just meat. But is there anything else you weren't eating inadvertently that you didn't decide to cut out that you weren't eating? For example? No, I had cheese and... Uh, bread? Uh, yeah, I had Pass. bread. I had, I had bread. I just cut yeah. out meat. Okay. I'm just trying to... I'm just trying to... I'm just trying to... I want to find a weakness. <laughs> I'm going to stick my eat vegan place. I'll cut my... <laughs> So I was like, okay, well, let me try then with dairy. And that is actually when the whole big change happened. So my puffiness went away. Cut the dairy out. Cut the dairy out. Okay. I just kept cheese because cheese was my weakness. You didn't cut the dairy out then? The, cut I some of the dairy out. <laughs> so I cut out milk. <laughs> I got out. Uh, I did cut out eggs, um, yogurt. Uh, sour cream, um, these things, but I did count some cheese. So, um, so I and but that really was when I when I noticed all the changes. I lost weight, this puffiness went away, and my energy skyrocketed. And that's when I actually started diving into books and reading and exploring more about it, researching and. Um, and I, I got uh, into eCornell. Cornell University had uh, their own nutrition, plant-based nutrition course. So I finished that. And then once I learned how it actually, you know, how our body, uh, how our body works and how food affects, directly affects our, our um, and benefits us. So, hmm. So, so that's how I actually turned plant-based. You know, it was, it was not just right okay i'm gonna try this because i do like as you know i like my food and i i really enjoy food but that's another thing i now enjoyed and um i never enjoyed food as much as i do now and it helped me physically but it also helped me mentally so i i feel better i feel i feel like where i 
really should be now. Well, it's yeah. a vocation. It's an art. It is absolutely. I, it I, is, I, I yeah. love cooking. I go through phases yeah. of of, uh, of how much time I put into cooking. Um, but I do enjoy it. I love making a good meal. I love trying mm. taste new things. And nothing yeah. better than eating something you've done your, yourself. But I experienced the same. We're gonna. Uh, we'll, we'll bring us to a close in a minute. But I experienced uh, when I experienced. So I've got constant energy levels now. Mm. I don't have slumps in energy. Flat out don't have it. I've got constant energy levels, yep. and it was a simple change in my diet. And it was. Uh, it happened inadvertently when I drastically reduced my sugar and carbon. Mm-hmm. So I like you. We were talking before the podcast. Like. I don't go into something and go, right, I am now, like no. you say, you don't describe yeah. me as a vegan. I'm now completely plant-based, now completely vegan, and oh, I'm now going to never eat sugar or carbs again. No. bollocks. <laughs> I like my vices. I like to <laughs> yeah. indulge myself every so often. Yeah, right? of course. But now I'll only have, I'll only have sugar in beer, really. I don't rarely have mm. sugar otherwise. Um, obviously, I'm on about refined sugar, right? Um, and then carbs, I try and minimize carbs. Mm. I I get worse at it. When I'm training more, I allow myself to be more relaxed, but I then notice the impact. But I've got constant energy levels. Don't get slumps. Never. But it's no. again, you're absolutely right. Re- like Regardless of the diet you're on, the different diets suit different people. Yes, of course. Know, 100%. Bodies are very different. But the one thing that's common across us all is is that your diet and what you put in your body, has a, it will have, regardless of who you are, has a huge effect on your mental capacity absolutely. as much as your physical capacity. That is... You can't argue with that. Absolutely. The trick is to find what, f- find out first what is not good for you. Because when I go on the, the mental side of things, I, I absolutely notice now. I I notice now inhibition mentally, my mental ability, or my mental state, when I ha- when I eat too many bad things and I own like sugar or carbs specifically. It can genuinely impact me, and I only know that because I minimize in the first place mm-hmm. and notice a change when I started minimizing mm-hmm. them. Right. And and it's just it's another one. There's another reason I asked about the plant based diet and you're on your journey through the coping with all that, the the culmination of the trauma. Yeah. Like that was sort of the flipping icing on the cake, the Kunzer yeah. incident for the life you've had, right? Is it, why because because the your diet has a big impact on your mental health, as it your, does. You know, your, your physical diet and your actual eating diet. That you're exactly. Doing, what you're doing to your body, exactly. what you're putting in it, and what you're treating it, and that's why I asked because it benefits everyone. You know, it's uh, and I'm glad in the way we had. You know, I'm 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 glad that you, you know, you're like a, you're someone positive. You're someone measured. You can who is it? You can talk about the plant based diet in a flipping, <laughs> open, way. honest way <laughs> and not get t- and not 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 through the teddies out of the pram when I put my no, uh, eat vegans face <laughs> on. You know, and uh, but it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today, right? Eat, tell me about the tell me about what you're doing now. Right, so so that was shameless plug. Shameless plug. That, well, yeah, that that kind of led my my recovery and all these phases from cooking to plant based cooking came down to where I am now, which is a plant based nutrition coach. And um, I I think that there are ways to recover yourself. It doesn't necessarily have to be obviously as difficult trauma as we went through, but but nutrition is so much more than what we put in our body it's you know it's social and cultural as well like what we read what we listen to what we talk about people we are hanging out with life nutrition yes but it is right so because that all feeds you all feeds you mentally because it all affects your body and your mind so you know it's it starts with with uh, plant-based nutrition but 
cleaning what I eat um, also taught me to clean what I feed myself in in different ways you know like um, news and uh, or types of news um, people I surround myself with and uh, um, other rituals like sleeping routine and you know things like that so um, exercise and type of exercise and um, uh, so so yeah it starts all with uh, with plant-based plant-based uh, and nutrition but uh, that's what I do now so I'm a nutrition coach and I help people transition uh, to eat a fully or predominantly plant-based diet, but we work on on other things like you know different routines that um, our body and our mind need as well. That's cool. No, no better person to be doing it either, if I may say so. <laughs> However, <laughs> Thank what does you. your what does your mum think about you being plant-based? Oh, that was quite challenging. <laughs> But uh, my mom doesn't have a choice when she's an outside. But I'll tell you another thing. Result. Uh, she, my mom was on heart medications for twenty years, right? A different five different medications. So now she's down to two minimal doses because she's plant based. No way. Yeah. You converted. Yeah. You converted I your mom. I did. Oh my god! That yeah. is really. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus. So she's yeah, yeah, yeah. But but uh, she's not as disciplined when she's not with us. <laughs> <laughs> but um, she she is in the sense that um, she's still on the same level of medications. Um, but she's obviously uh, when she comes to visit us, is much stricter. Uh, but uh, but yeah, she she enjoys it. She lost weight as well, and she improved her health, and uh, she stopped taking medications for blood pressure. Uh, just take so yeah. So yeah. Awesome. Awesome results. Yeah. Um how do how do people find you? How do people get hold of you? How do people get your services? I have they can find me under my, my name on uh, uh, Facebook. I do have a uh, Facebook page, but I also have a Facebook group uh, which is called the Plant Party Community. And uh, and I have um the Plant Camp um is my Instagram and uh, Facebook handle so they can find me I'll that way and just send me a, a, a DM. I'll put those in the links underneath the blurb for this podcast Thanks. if someone's listening or watching now yeah, you'll find the you. links underneath the blurb. Cool. Yeah. What thank have we you. not covered? What have we not covered? We covered everything we should have covered in the first podcast. Yeah. <laughs> not the first one was good. But yeah. Well yeah I don't I, I don't know if um I'd like to say that people should reach out if they um they should reach out if they need support. There's no shame in that. Um, it doesn't matter, is it a professional help or just a friend or a family member, but yeah, don't go through it on your own and just reach out. I agree, you end this lesson. B, yeah. thank you. You're welcome, thank you for having me. My pleasure, good luck. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Um, there's you can get H Hour podcast merchandise if you go to shop.charliecharlie1.com or just go to charliecharlie1.com and click on the shop in the menu. There's all sorts of merchandise in there. There's t-shirts, there's mugs, there's all sorts of stuff. It's, uh, yeah, it's just neat little stuff. If you want to go and get some kits, quite nice, good quality. And um, if you want to, you can actually become a patron of the podcast and support what I'm doing. 
and support the podcast, you can do that by going to patreon.com forward slash HK podcasts uh, and join a bunch of other people who, who support me as patrons there. Thank you to all my Patreon supporters. Uh, and another shout and a thank you to the sponsors. The Aardvark Group have been uh, mine clearing and developing technical innovations to aid mine clearance and um, the reduction of unexploded ordnance, unexploded ordnance in the world. They've been doing it since 1982. They support the militia community, they support this podcast, and they've also got a discount code at the moment for their merchandise shop. Uh, it's only valid for December. Uh, go to aardvark.group, click on the shop, and uh, enter the discount code TAG30, T-A-G-3-0, and you get 30% off. Boom. Also sponsoring the podcast were Rugby for Heroes, fundraising for military charities by organising rugby-oriented events. And they've been doing that since 2009. You can find out more about Rugby for Heroes at... Um, oh, follow them on social media at Rugby4Heroes. And their website is rugbyforheroes.org. And finally, Unmanned Air Veterans. Unmanned Air Veterans provide commercial UAV services and uh, they're a veteran-owned and operated company. And the, the founder, Stuart Logan himself, operated UAVs in the British Army uh, right back since 1999 extremely capable uh, people behind that business and um, they're here to now to provide UAV commercial services or commercial UAV services I should say so search for unmanned air veterans on LinkedIn Facebook and Instagram that's it thank you for listening to the podcast until next time out